evening. Welcome to tonight's shear. Tonight it is uh, today, it's a special day. It's the yard site of the Arizal. And the Rebbe encouraged Bechlal in the nine days to add in Torah, Tefillah, and Stokah, Betzibur. So whoever's down in Betzibur, I'm sure you've done it. That, that happened already, but uh, we'll be going, we're learning Torah, Betzibur, virtual Tzibur. And everyone's got a soccer push card home. So we'll start off. I'm going to put uh, something in Stocker, then I'm going to share with you something from the Arizal. Okay. So if you have a pushka, I'm going to do it collectively. Now, okay. So a part of the Arizal before our list of questions. So this is in, I've taken it out of the Ein Yaakov in Gemara Brochus. And then it, there it says the following Kol Whoever has a set place for davening, Hashem, the God of Avroham will be at his aid, his assistance. So he quotes here, this is Anaf Yosef, one of the commentaries on the Ein Yaakov. He quotes from a Sefer Derech Moshe, how a person should have a set place for davening, evening and morning, because the Shechina, the Divine Presence, would be in the Shul or in a place where it's a set place, if you are in a place where there's no shul, so you have your set place for davening. And if someone will say, well, Hashem is all over. So the answer is, yes, yeah, so why is it important to have a set place? Whenever Hashem is there, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll pick up your tefillahs. So he gives the following um, explanation. You should know that nowadays, with our, unfortunately for our many sins, Eden are compared to a nido. As it says in the beginning of Echo, Alkein Lenido Hoyoso. They're like a nido. And a nido is forbidden to sit with her husband on a bench which is not stable. If it's a, a, a bench which is Nova Nod, which will, which will uh, shake, which will sway, so the husband and wife wouldn't be allowed to sit on that chair, on that bench. Therefore, since Eden are compared now in the state of Nido, so the Shechina cannot reside with the Eden. Oh no, but if it's a Mokin Kavua, if it's like a fixed bench, then the Shechina can be together with the Eden. So this is a, uh, sounds like quite a, a hap word, but it's, it's a word that he's saying in the name of the Arizal. And the uh, the posture thing is, why is it important to have a set place for davening, whether at home or in shul, is, I, I think, on a very simplistic level, that people might be distracted sometimes with the things which are going on around them. If you have a, you come to a new place, there's a new, there's a new environment, so things are, are distracting. After a couple of days, you get used to it. If you come every day to the same place, so then there's less distraction. You'll be able to just focus on your davening easier. So at any rate, so we have here, I've said before, the Rebbe encouraged to increase the union of tefillah um, during, especially during the nine days. Um, so here the idea of mocking kavul tefillah was also related to, en to enhance the union of tefillah. Let's go on to our questions, though, which we have 
listed here. So a couple, so some shluchim are in a some remote place. At the moment, there is no mikra there. And they received a grant from some fund to be able to build a mikra there. At the moment, the mikra is not up to operations. No, it's, it's, it's like in the future, but the moment is not, not ready there yet. Okay, but the money is sitting in a bank, let's say. Meanwhile, they're, for their current expenses, they are struggling. And so their employer, in other words, there's like a head shliach of the area who's responsible for their salary. And he doesn't have the funds to pay them. And he, at the moment, so he says, borrow from that, from that uh, mikvah money. So he asks, is that legitimate for borrowing that money, which is designated earmark, donate for building a mikvah? Is it, is it legitimate to use it for other purposes as a loan? So not so explicit, but my impression is that no, it wouldn't be okay. You have here, I say for Tzokho Mishpot, on the screen, he talks about money which was collected for a shul, for the building of a shul. And there's a wish to change it for a different use. You'd have to have the Tuvi Ho'ir, the leadership, the lay leadership of the, of the community. And then they would be allowed to change it. Without that, you wouldn't be allowed to. Then he says to borrow that money to put other money instead. That would would be okay, but I think that that's that's true. Um, he means that to borrow that money to immediately replace. Well, I'm I'm very concerned here that they received a a grant for a mikvah, and if they're going to use that for current expenses, come the time when they'll want to build the mikvah, they will turn around. They won't have the funds. What I did say to them is they could use this money as as this money in the bank, they could use it as a security, perhaps, to take a loan from the bank and, and against that money, which is um, which is the mikvah fund. But to actually touch that money directly, I felt would not be uh, well, not be justified. Let's move on. Right. So. Some weeks ago, someone asked me to clarify what's the source of the minhag of touching the Sefer Torah at the beginning and the end of one's aliyah. So what we have, first of all, in Shulchan Aruch. Unfortunately, this part of Shulchan Aruch is not there in the altar of the Shulchan Aruch. It talks about the Sefer Torah looking opening the Sefer Torah before saying the bracha, to see the posse when you're going to start, and then you'd roll the Sefer Torah closed, and you'd say the bracha whilst the Sefer Torah is closed. That's how we're knowing not everyone, there are those who say the bracha with the Sefer Torah open. So that is the, that's the Shukhan of opening the Sefer Like when you make a bracha on anything else, you kind of, look at, you kind of hold it in your hand kind of thing, before you make a bracha, kind of focus, this is what I'm going to make the bracha on. So you're going to make a bracha on a part of the of the Torah, 
So you, you look at what you're going to say, you're going to be agree reading. So that's just looking. Then we have here, the next quote is from a Sefer Shari Ephraim, which is a uh, specialist Sefer on Kriyasatoya. So he describes the person has Aliyah, so he's the, uh, whoever's in charge of Balkhoire is going to show him where they're going to read from. And then he writes, and it's customary that that the one who's having the Aliyah touches with his talus or with the mantle of the Sivatoire or the Gartel nowadays and touches part of the, the column which is going to read, kisses the talus. And then he says, who minig was This is a, a time-honored minig. This is also confirmed a little bit more detail in Hayoim Yoim, as you see in Dalad Elul. One touches the talus with the talus at the beginning of the reading and at the end. So that's a bit more specific. The Shari Ephraim just said about touching the mixasa omud, some of the column. And here it's more pointed of touching the beginning at the and the end and then kissing that the talus where the talus touched the sivataira rolling it closed turning it to one side and then you make the brocha to, to tilt it to one side and then you open the sivataira and the reading commences the actually the rebbe certainly in the later years would touch at the beginning and the end and the beginning again and at the end of the aliyah we touch at the end the beginning and the end again Right, so that, that that's a development from the uh, Shari Hafraim's Minagvati Vasikin, and this goes back to a sefer called Yalkut Hagir Shuni. And that's this Yalkut Hagir Shuni. Okay, so let's let's just stop for a second. That there was a concern, there is a concern, and it's, I think it's worth discussing this. That sometimes people touch with the talus or with a gartel and they wipe they have a swipe or uh, with the gartel on the parchment with the writing and i it's i cringe every time i see it because there is the, the concern that when the person's speaking whether you said your brochus or whether the balkoire it's very common when people are speaking a bit of saliva comes out of their mouth accidentally if there's a bit of saliva somewhere on the on the script on the on the and then you take a cloth and, and rub it you're going to cause a terrible smudge and it could, it could cost money to repair but it's going to be a violation of the of you know it's going to ruin the the, the, the writing and so it's something really so because of this concern so let's go on to the next slide the yalkut gershuni um, not even sure when, how far ago, how long ago he lived. He wrote, but he writes by some particular. He quotes from a sefer that is not right that people touch with the uh, cloth on the letters of the sefer Torah. It's likely they will come to erasing Hashem's name, erasing on Shabbos, because it's often that there will be some little bits of, of uh, saliva, and therefore one should announce that this is a minigin. It's a minig shtus, and it's enough to just to see. Now, this position was also taken by the Munkacher. The Munkacher Rabbi says, don't touch the Sefer don't touch the writing, just, if you have to touch just the side, just the margin, don't touch the writing. 
nevertheless, the Yalkut Gashunish says, it, this is a widespread meaning, and it's done to, to show it, how one cherishes the mitzvah, one, like with Christian tzitzis. So it's also, this is a form of cherishing the mitzvah. And therefore, Anachalahem Yisrael, leave it and continue what they're doing, and therefore one shouldn't stop this. And he, he quotes now from the Sefer Yosef Oymetz, which is meaning of Mahogim of Frankfurt, going back about four, 300 years ago, to open the Sefer and to honor it. Also, by a, with a kiss, as you take leave also. So this is an old meaning. Right, so what, what, so what should be said, though, very, clear, very clearly, that whilst we do touch the Sefer Torah with the cloth or with the talus, it's a touch and not a, not a wipe and not a swipe, because that Shalom could cause damage. And so it's exactly the same for people who go for Hagvin. And they open it three, three columns or more. That's fine. But there's no need to pass the cloth all over and, and give it a big swipe over three pages, three columns. Just touch it. You've, you've showed your respect, your cherishing. That's wonderful. But avoid the swiping because it could be causing damage. So that's about the, the positive and the negative about the touching the sifatoya with the cloth. Let's move on. So I got a, a, a WhatsApp message earlier last week. Why don't we eat meat in the nine days? And if you're going to tell me it's because of Avelis, well, and, and during the week of Shiva and Oval Rahman Litzlan is allowed to eat meat. And just to clarify, there are two stages. There's a stage called Aninus, which would be uh, intense grief. And during that time, that's until the Leviah of that of the uh, the relative. So until the, the funeral takes place, they're not allowed to have wine or meat. Once the divide does take place, then they are allowed to. The oval is allowed to have wine and meat. So therefore, why not during the nine days? Why can't you have meat during the nine days? What you have on the screen is from the Levush, which is uh, it's actually very common for the Levush to give explanations for minhogim, for uh, practices. And he writes, the reason for not having meat, this is in commemoration that the daily sacrifice in the Beis HaMikdosh was a lamb in the morning, lamb in the afternoon, that ceased at this time of Tisha B'Av, etc. At this time, the Beis HaMikdosh ceased to function and therefore one of the things which just uh, stopped was the Hashem's bread, so to speak, the daily Korban Tomit. And the Korban Tomit would be accompanied with pouring of wine on the Mizbeah. And for this reason, to kind of relate to the sadness of the fact that there's no Korban Tomit and no Nesochim, that's the reason for the Minig of not having meat or wine during the nine days, unless obviously in the case of a Sudas Mitzvah, if, uh, when it's justified. Okay. Let's move on. So someone asked me last week a contemporary question that does it become a common thing that people take the broken glass from the chuppah, where the chosen treads on the uh, stamps on the glass and breaks it, and they take this glass 
and they bring it to a, someone who's just uh, artisan or whatever, who would then melt it, melt that glass, and now create something very beautiful, candlesticks or something. I've even heard that it goes even further, that now you can buy special fancy glasses, which are multicolored for under the chuppah, so that they should be able to create a fancy piece of ornament from the broken glass. So the, the, the moral dilemma of this person was, is this out of place? Because here you're breaking the glass. One of the reasons is to commemorate the destruction of Yerushalayim. So then you make this into a piece of jewelry and a piece of into an ornament to make something fancy. It seems a little bit incongruous. That's that was the I think they feel the sentiment to object. So there is a concept of taking a a mit, an article which was used for a mitzvah and to use it for another mitzvah. It may not necessarily apply here, but let's go through that. We have here in Alter Rebbe's Shechonoruch, Pesach, to take for the burning of the Chomets, to use the Arovas, which were beaten at Hoshanas and Hoshana Rabbe, and to take the Luluf, or the Arovas of the Luluf, rather, and to use them for the baking of matzahs, which is an interesting um, observation that the Hashanah, as we know, is to, um, to, to sweeten Gevuras. It's got to do with Gevura. And therefore, to use the Hashanah to burn the Chomets, which is more of a negative thing. The Arovis is a mitzvah, a positive mitzvah. And therefore, to use the Hashanah, sorry, the Arovis, to use them for the baking of Matzah. So you have this idea of using something for a totally different purpose, but this was used for one mitzvah to use it for another mitzvah. The only thing is that there, it's not that those mitzvahs are not destructive. Well, here there's a minyag of, the, of to destroy a glass. That's where the bit of the dilemma is. Okay. So then there's a famous Gemara. Yeah. So one, let's go to the positive side of it. First of all, the fact that I, I did a bit of a Google search on this, and I saw this become really a very popular thing. Many, many sites are offering to make stuff nice stuff for you from your uh, chasana broken from broken glass from the chasana so actually i saw this in a positive light you've got these hidden who are not necessarily um for keeping everything every day detail in but they are getting married in a kosher way and this is part of the ceremony, and they're cherishing. They're making a celebration of part of the of the chuppah, which I think is, is, is beautiful. But let's, say, let's take it further. You have a Gomorrah in Baruchas, which says the following, that one who benefits from the Suda of a chosen, he doesn't gladden the heart of the chosen, then he's in violation of kol simcha, etc. And if he does gladden the heart of the chosen, so he says, what is the reward? So there's various rewards. First of all, about the five koilas. Then he says, that Nachman says, one who gladdens the heart of the chosen on the day of his wedding. So it's as if he built one of the ruins of Yerushalayim. Because it says, This is based on a posuk in Yirmiyah. talks about the sound of celebration. 
uh, of, of a wedding. And then it says, I will restore I will restore the settlement of the land as, as it was at the beginning of our Hashem. So a chasana is, uh, is a kind of a rebuilding of Esamikdash. Therefore, I don't see it totally out of, out of uh, order to take something which was to commemorate the, the, the destruction and then to use it to make, it something, make something beautiful. And that's what our avoider is. We have the concept of Shvira Sakhalim. We have, there are ruins in this world. And our mission is to take all of those bits and pieces and to, 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 uh, to elevate, to perhaps fuse them together and to create some of the harmony and to make something beautiful. So I, I think there is, taking it a little bit further, I think there is actually a, a very positive uh, way of, of, of looking at this, of this minute. Let's move on to point number five. What is that? May one wash a shaitl during the nine days. So this has been discussed in various contemporaries forum. We don't do laundry during the nine days. And that's really got to do with hesachadas. Anyway, we don't do laundry during the nine days. So what is a, what is a wig? A wig is, after all, it's, it's a garment. It's a garment made of hair, but it's basically a garment. So here we have a sefer called Rivervoice Ephraim, uh, from Ephraim Greenblatt, Greenblatt of Memphis, where he asked this question. He was, he was asked this question, and he had said it's okay. Since I've, but since then, I've seen in the uh, following sefer, Divrechachomim, the name of Rav Yashiv, that it's not okay. He considers it a beged. Whereas Reb Chaim Pinchas Schreinberg says it is okay because he doesn't see a wig as a beggar. What I've seen in other contemporaries forum, whether Shem Rav, um, Rav Vosner, etc., they say no, they say they see a, a shaitl, they see a wig as a garment, and therefore it shouldn't be washed during the nine days. I had one uh, woman who contacted me and she's feeling very, very uncomfortable and going on holidays, whatever. And I felt that it was appropriate to rely on the, the lenient opinion. So generally, the answer would be no. A push comes to shove, and sometimes you have to be accommodating where people are finding things very uh, taxing. So I said there are opinions who you can rely upon to, to uh, have your shuttle washed. Let's move on. Seriously, I, have a, I haven't really found a solution to this problem. I'll tell you what the problem is. You have here, this, this is not in, in England, it's somewhere overseas, and there is available government aid to help families in need. So someone's working as an agent, finding helpers to go into families and to help them with the children and with, with their, and you get, and people are paid for that. And so then we have the situation where some of their needs on Shabbos. Let's say it's a single mother and she has a boy of 10 years old or 11 years old and he never goes to Shul on Shabbos because he's uncomfortable to go alone. So then there's someone who's, a, who's ready to take this boy to Shul. It's, it's a couple of hours. So they, that would be, and that's an amazing thing because he's going to give this boy positive attention that we will start enjoying going to show 
And that's a wonderful thing. That would be a, a tremendous investment for the spiritual uh, welfare of that boy for the for the for the years to come. Can they charge for their hours? So you're not allowed to charge for your hours on Shabbos. So I'm going to read here. This is from Simon Sheenfall. And let me get, just clarify something. There's a difference between Schar Shabbos and, um, and employing a, a Goy on Shabbos. You are allowed to have a Goy work for you on Shabbos. I'm talking about work as in a guard, not talking about Malacha, like a, a security guard, a waiter, a waitress. You can have Goyim working for you and you can pay them for their Shabbos time. That's not a problem. It's only that you can't pay them on Shabbos. We've discussed this a few times because even if you put an envelope at the side and say, just take the envelope before you go home, that wouldn't be okay uh, because you're basically, it's paying people, it's a transaction, shouldn't be done on Shabbos. But here we're talking about a Jew. A Jew is not allowed to earn money on Shabbos. It goes so far that if I would have money generating interest, if it would be earning money per hour, not per day, then I wouldn't be allowed to be earning interest on Shabbos. The fact is that the interest is charged from midnight to midnight, and therefore I'm not earning the interest on my savings on Shabbos, because it's also that, that unit, in, it, it straddles Shabbos and not Shabbos. But you're not allowed to earn money even if you're not doing anything. Certainly if you're doing something, you're not allowed to charge and earn money for your Shabbos time. So then it has here in Shulchan Aruch and the Sin about hiring a chazan for Shabbos or Yom Tov. Even if the hiring was confirmed before Shabbos, they wouldn't be allowed to take payment for Shabbos and Yom Tov. So to the one who's blowing Shafar and Shoshana, there are those who permit this because since there's a mitzvah purpose, then Schar Shabbos is waived. The issue of Schar Shabbos is waived since there's a purpose of mitzvah. Schar Shabbos, which you can be paid after Shabbos, is only a precaution because you shouldn't come to hire someone on Shabbos. And why aren't you allowed to hire someone on Shabbos? Because it's a, it's a, like an act of, of, of trade. And why aren't you allowed to trade on Shabbos? Because you might come to write. So it's a bit remote. Indeed, the minig is to allow payment, paying a chazan of Altakea for their services rendered on Shabbos. However, he does continue to say, But one wouldn't see brocha from that from that payment, from that salary, even though it's permitted, let's say, there is a way of doing with the package. And so if you have a chazan who is employed by a shul and his duties include Shabbos and not Shabbos. So if there's a Leviya, he's on duty. And if it's on Shabbos and if it's a, a chasana, he's, he's, he's hired to provide chazanus services as and when they are called for. And then And there's a package. It's not paid per hour. That would be... Uh, a, a way of, of getting around it. With a balkoire, the general approach is that he's paid for his preparation as well as his rendering of the reading. By the way, that means if he's prepared, pe being paid for his preparation, 
if he has to lay in two or three times the same kriya, he can't charge um, twice and three times as much because he's being paid for the preparation. Be that as it may, the issue in our case is that since it's a government-paid um, position of a service, they need to give a, an invoice for their Shabbos time. And that's really where I'm getting a bit stuck. It's all very well, I could say, Mr. Kara, you'll you'll do some work with this boy on a, a Tuesday or a Thursday, and you'll also take him to Shul on Shabbos. And you'll be paid one lump sum for the, the, the package, which includes Thursday evening and Shabbos. That would be legitimate. The problem is that they have to present their hours to the government to whichever government body it is and they have to there stipulate which the hours were and it's going to be uh, unwise to start fiddling around with that it's uh, and perhaps perhaps incorrect so this this is really the dilemma how are you going to get around that um i'm a little bit um the only thing i'm thinking of is if the jewish employer who is like the middleman pays them in a kosher way, the fact that they have to present hours to the government, but they're not earning the money from the government, they're being paid by the middleman, that may be one way around it. Because really it is a mitzvah, it's a mitzvah, well we have here a heter, a shame mitzvah, and it is a, a very important thing which we would like, love to find a permissible way to that it should happen. Okay, let's move on. So I was uh, at a Hachnosa in Manchester just over a month ago, I think, and I noticed that there was a sticker on the outside of the parchment, which had possibly uh, some identification, uh, telephone number, whatever, a contact. And I asked them to remove it before you know, as they were finishing separatory before uh, that's that, that that's that was i was a bit anxious about it so really this goes back to 50 60 years ago there was this concern that masuzas were being checked Baruch Hashem, possibly got to do with the rebbe's uh mezuzah till then it was mamish uh, a lot of not kosher in the market, and the Rebbe, part of the Rebbe's campaign inc included that there was a a uh, law in the Israeli um, in Parliament that to forbid the sale of posel mezuzahs. And I remember the Rebbe talking about there was a there was a uh, a Parliament uh, a parliamentarian who was totally not religious, but she was very outspoken that the you're not allowed to sell fraud mezuzahs whether you're whether i'm religious or not is one thing but you're not allowed to sell fraud mezuzahs so baruch hashem there was a big uh, revival in the in in the uh, checking of mezuzahs etc so then when you buy a mezuzah you need to have a certificate that has been checked by uh, by someone competent so then could you have some kind of um embossed seal on the mezuzah that is being checked and so Moshe Feinstein says no you're not allowed to have it never certainly not to have added writing 
you may recall that in the Rambam, he talks about where people were writing names of Malochim inside the mezuzah. And the Rambam really lashes out at this. He says, you're taking a mitzvah and making it into an amulet. And because you're putting extra writing, you are disqualifying the mezuzah. The mezuzah must only have the two parshas of Shema and Vahoyim Shemoyam. So additional writing in the mezuzah isn't okay. Even, says Moshe Feinstein, even an embossed let, um, word, muga, which means checked, that also wouldn't be okay because you're adding to the script. You've got on the back of the mezuzah, we've got Hashem's name, Shein Dalatud. And we've got also on the back of Hashem, Hashem, we've got those mezuzah writing, whatever, without going to detail. But other than that, there shouldn't be any extra, extra writing. Is a sticker the same as writing in the mezuzah? My feeling is it is, because what's the difference whether the ink is stuck directly or the ink is on a piece of paper and the piece of paper is stuck? It becomes still part of the mezuzah, and therefore I think it's a problem. And what I've got here, I'll see in the chat in a moment, but I'll, um, what I've got here on the screen from a, I just did a search on the, so the Sefer Mishnah Sastam, a contemporary Sefer, that one should not be imprinting on a Sefer Torah or mezuzah, the words nivdak, which means it's been checked, or anything else, even on the outside. And even if it's just um, embossed or engraved, and, and so I would say the same thing as with a... With a, uh, with a uh, so Reb Arya is asking, what about invisible ink code? All right, that that's, might be... I'm, I'm sure it's been discussed because the other side of it is we do want to have a form of... a way of identifying a sefetorah to avoid, you know, to prevent it from theft, it should be able to. Yes, there is the question of putting uh, an identifying feature, which would only be visible with ultraviolet light. Possibly, possibly. I mean, I'm sure it's been discussed in contemporaries forum, because and therefore for the 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 redeeming factor is it's not legible. It's only it's only legible. It's not it's not, not visible. It's only visible under with special equipment. So you can say that's not considered additional writing. That is an argument, yeah. But I, I don't want to say something definitive. Generally, matters of sophros is a very specialized area. And I try to uh, steer clear of saying anything, which I don't feel totally qualified to, uh, to say. Okay, let's go on. So last year, we went through this. Um, perhaps we'll go through it briefly. What happened last, what happened in Tofshin Memhei? So that year, Tishabov was on a Shabbos, and therefore the fast was on Sunday. And Rabbi Yomi Klein, the Rebbe Gabe, one of the Rebbe Gaboim, he had Yortzeit on Yud Ov. And during the Shachris, Rebbe was downstairs for Shacharis. I don't know, I was upstairs. I'm not sure I wasn't there. Um, the Rebbe is present at Shacharis. And when it came to after Moedim, before Sim Sholem, the Rebbe would always turn towards the Chazan to see the Chazan by Yavrechacho. And Chabad is quite emphasized to the right and to the left, etc. And the Rebbe would be knowing um, to look very intently at the Chazan at, the, at that moment of. But the chazan says birchas koenim, so he turned towards the chazan to say birchas for the birchas koenim. Now in kitzur shemunarach etc., 
uh, it says the meaning is not to do Birchas Koenim on Shacharis of, of Tishabal. And so that, that was one thing. So in the evening, later in the day, Rabbi Grona wrote to the Rebbe to query whether this was Ahiras, whether this was a, 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 a ruling to continue this way, or was it what's called Ahiras? Sure, it's only a one-off uh, ruling. The second point was about the drinking of the wine of Havdola, whether where whether it should whether this was because bear in mind it was already the night of the tenth of Av after the tenth of Av. Is there an objection to the to the man making Havdola to drink the wine when there is a child available? So for the for the first question that ever did confirm that his was a Hiroas Shah, but then he writes two things that the Minigov Kambolim Yushalayim Tibonavisikodin Atto. You look at the Kafachayim and you'll see that uh, he writes that despite there is the Minig not to do Bechas Koyanim at the morning of, of Tishabov, but the Minig of the Mukabolim, there was a there's a community was a community called Beis Kelia Kabitz, and he says that minig of that community which follow Kabbalah, they do Bichas Koyanim at Shachris on Tishabav also because the Kavonas for Shachris are the same on Tishabav as the whole year round. So that's one thing which the Reb is referring to, and the other thing is to Reb Amram Goen going back some 1100 years ago, who writes that on Tishabav morning and afternoon Bichas Koyanim is done, and Oid. I didn't find anything else. I mean, did not look too hard. But the Rebbe is, is, is showing that there are strong sources for saying Bechas Koenim in the morning of Tisha um, What I'm finding puzzling is the Rebbe that said it's a Hiroas Shor. Does that mean uh, that we do follow it, we don't follow it? I don't know. Um, you have this idea when the Rebbe has a uh, yes, Leimar becomes by Chosid becomes a Dover borrower, but he says Hiroas so I don't know how you how you handle that. The second one was about the the cup of Havdalah, so the wine. So he gives a reference to the El Yarabo, um, who who says, as far as I remember, not to drink the wine. And then he gives a reference to the Luach of Rav Tukachinsky, which I did not manage to locate. Uh, where he says that's not to, that you shouldn't drink the wine, and that's the impression which we get from all the commentators on the Shulchan Aruch. The only one who says you can drink the wine is the and he says because it doesn't say clearly that you mustn't drink the wine. But Bepashtis it says in Simatov Kofnun Aleph not to drink uh, the wine, wine during the nine days. Uh, and so therefore, and, and it also says that Motsi Tishabov is the same as the nine days. On the contrary, um, the distinction of the Nogomorvov of the United Behuda, no one mentions it. And the, the fact that it says clearly that you're not allowed to drink wine on Motsi Tishabov is said clearly in Shukhanarach how it should be said, but for your for how dull it is okay. So the Rebbe basically takes the view that it, would, that it wasn't okay to drink the wine. And uh, it should have been given to a child. Now, again, here the Rebbe says, So, what does that mean? Where does that leave us? Do we follow this, or do we say we can rely on the dog of Mervovo that you can drink the wine? So, 
I'm, my, my inclination is more to take this uh, as even though the Rebbe had said it's only Hero's show. Right, let's move on. So, so we had a discussion, was it last week or two weeks ago, about the area of payas. So several people asked me to clarify, in addition to the area of the payas, the thickness of the payas. And so let's first, let's go perhaps to the next slide, how generally chassidim were particular that it shouldn't have very short that the pace the pace of the head should not be trimmed very very short what i did mention last week is that when the rebbe had a haircut we did not see that the pace were thicker but he didn't have a very close number what we're seeing now is people are cutting their hair very close and the pace also become are cut very very close and that's something which is uh, is not a happy uh, development from a chsidish angle so here we have two little stories one is from the Sefer, so talk about Ramosha Vyshetsky. So Ramosha Vyshetsky was very, very chesidashid, and he lived in, 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 uh, in where was it, Chernovitz, wherever it was, Samarkand. It was very important for his chinuch of his children. When he'd give them a haircut, he would give them a chesidash haircut and leave, they leave them big, big pace. This is in communist Russia. One time, uh, one of the children said to his father, he's worried that his payas, if they're too uh, conspicuous, so he'll get trouble when he walks in the street. So his father says to him, if people won't know, notice that you have payas, then that means you don't have payas. So it was very important in communist Russia that his children should have noticeable payas. Okay. The other quote here is from Rameer Gurkov, who used to live in London until Tovshin Lamed Hay when he passed away. And he's describing, this is his memoirs. He's talking about the children, the Tamimim, et cetera, how they would be very noticeable, um, how they would dress, you know, in a refined way. And Yashomai and the Tzitzis were all visible. And they always had their hair cut, their head covered, even in the very hot days, they would be wearing a yarmulke, a makif, we used to call it in Russia. And not like the other young kids who would be, there would be am chutzpah and wildness etc and that would be also visible in their clothing and they would go bareheaded and sometimes half undressed and he says the tamimim would be visible also on their faces their edel appearance your shemaim on their faces and it was also visible their long payas which would go down to their cheeks which is quite interesting he's saying that uh that he's describing life back in russia in the shtetlach and how they had uh, visible payas, and he says also they would be down to their cheeks, which I find interesting. Um, all right, so that's that's on the certainly on the historical uh, um, level that we did always make a point of that the, the payas should be um, shouldn't be too too close, should be uh, should be visible, etc. Okay, now here what you have on this screen is from a sefer called Haksava Kabbalah. It's uh, not a not a not a sefer. Well, he's, he's, and it's in Parshas Kedoshim. He's looking at and he's very interesting. What is exactly um, the pas hazokon? Is it is it the face or is it the hair? And he makes an interesting observation. It does not say 
you shouldn't destroy the hair. It says you shouldn't deface, so to speak, the the chin, the head. That's what he's saying. He's saying that it really the payar and the zokon refers to that part of the body where the hair grows. Now, elsewhere, we have a halacha about hair. For example, by poradumo uh, about the hair. And then we have a din of it shouldn't be any other colored hair other than red. Then we have in the case of Mitsuiro, we have a din of hair being a symptom of tum, etc. In those places, we have a halocha that if it is long enough that you can bend back the top back to the to the source. Okay, that's the expression here, of So he's saying that that is said where the Torah talks about sayor talks about hair then there's a minimum size which is called sayer and if it's shorter than that it doesn't count as hair he's actually he's coming from a different angle to our discussion he's asking what happens if a person has got the very short hair and then they take a razor and they've got payers which are already very short and so short you couldn't bend it back and then he takes a razor and removes it totally is he punishable for removing his payas? So he says he is, because there's no minimum length by payas. So yeah, when it's got to do with the mitzayra, et cetera, there's a minimum short length. If it's shorter than that, it doesn't count as a hair. Therefore, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't it's not a sympathy of tumor, et cetera, et cetera. But here, there's no din of, doesn't say the word sayer. And therefore, even a very short hair if you destroy it totally, so then you're in violation of destroying the payas. But the, the how do you say, the, oh, the spin-off of that is that there's no minimum length of the payas. That's, that's what it is. Although he's, he's addressing a more a humra stance, but there's a, there's a spin-off, which is lakula. So that may be, um, but as I say, the, certainly the minig is to have that the payas should be that little bit longer and should be visible and certainly uh, to have a very short haircut in a way that leaving mamish uh, a couple of millimeters long it would not be okay let's move on right now i think we had this discussion not too long ago um about if you have a minion and they don't have uh, on so fast day they don't have a minion of people are fasting so someone sent to me from Reb Zalman Shimon's writing. Reb Zalman Shimon's work was Robinson 70. And there's a book, a safer called Kovitz Razash. And there he has a letter of Reb Zalman Shimon to someone called Spaceman. And I've never heard of this Spaceman as part of the Chabad community, uh, other than his mention over there. Uh, it could be one of the people Reb Zalman Shimon knew back from Pittsburgh before he moved back to Crown Heights. Um, but he writes the following. Um, you should know the Minig is, he's quoting now, he, what he's quoting here, be careful, is from a sefer called Leket Yosher. Leket Yosher is a, it's written by a Talmud of Rabbi Yisrael Isselin. Yisrael Isselin is famous for his sefer called Trumas Hadeshen. He was a, a generation or two before Rabbi Yosef Karo. Don't know exactly the, the history of that, that approximate period. Um, one of the Mamish, the Gedele Hadar, and he has a Talmud who follows his 
his uh, practices and you know he's like 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 a hostile rebbe's rebbe did this rebbe did that so that's what leket yoshe is but there he writes the following minig is you look if there's 10 people who are ready to fast this is like a voluntary fast and if you don't find 10 you look for seven and if not at least you have three each of fasting and then you can say anein so here you see that you can have three is enough to say anein now so this is not such a big surprise because Litter Marcellic, as you see over here, quotes also the Sefer Ho Agudo, who is also uh, Yakisha Hoysuk, who also says that you can have, if you have three people who are fasting, you can say Anenu. However, the Shukhanoruch Paskins, like the Rashbo, who says you cannot, that three people fasting is not enough to say Anenu, you have to have a minion who are fasting to say Anenu. Now, just running through this briefly because I think we have gone through this before. This is in the time there was a chaleria, there was a, an a, a epidemic of some sort. And the Tzmach here in one place says you can rely on the Aguda. If you have three people who are fasting, then you can say Anenu with a separate bracha, as it's discussed elsewhere, as I've written about this elsewhere. Well, elsewhere, the Tzmach goes into this in more detail and he says that. Korea, that um, there is one who says even a yochid, but if you have at least you have three people, and then he says you've got another seven who have eaten pochus mikashir, then you could say anein. Um, and here we have again another writing of Tzemach If there are three who are fasting, and for sure there'll be another seven who have eaten pochus mikashir, then you can say anein. So what I'm seeing here is that Tzemach is not saying you don't need uh, more than three. He's saying you got three who are fasting authentically, and the other seven would like to fast, but they can't fast properly, so they're eating a little bit because of the plague. They don't want to weaken their uh, their immunity. So they, but uh, to, to, if people are eating without any regard for the fast, I think that is a problem to say aneno uh, with their presence, um, you know, with their making up morning. Oh. The uh, alternative is, as I said last time. Say Anenu in Shemeat Philo, incorporate it in Shemeat Philo, no question of Baruchalavatola then, and that solves your problem. Okay, let's move on. We've almost finished our list of questions for today, but someone asked me to clarify are you allowed to bake and cook on Tisha B'av afternoon for Shabbos? So Tisha B'av one avoids doing Malacha. But the afternoon is more lenient. That's written already because the Shekhanoruch and Shekhanoruch. The afternoon is permitted. You'll have to start preparing food for the evening. But I wanted to get something more, more poem clear. So this is from the Nite Gavriel. And he writes, when Tisha B'Av is on a Thursday, then you're allowed to bake and cook on even before Chatzos, the covered Shabbos. So certainly in the afternoon, you'd be allowed to do... Um, Cooking and baking for Shabbos, the afternoon would be okay. Um, so that's a clear, a clear uh, ruling on that. He says here, and which also is an interesting thing, if you need clothes for Shabbos and you have a non-Jewish worker, so you could ask them to do the, some laundry for needed, which is needed for Shabbos. You'd be allowed to ask them to do, uh, uh, if it's not possible to manage to do that on Friday for whatever reason. Uh, then he talks about person traveling, which. Okay, we'll have to deal with that separately. 
Right, let's go on for our last thing. And that was, as I was in the, um, in the, my, my, my slot in the base Hiroa here in Stamford Hill is on Friday morning. I'm there from 11.30 to 1. Uh, I asked for that slot because I hope that Friday would be a more busy slot. So before going to this, Mendel is asking about would the same limitations apply to Vayichal? And the answer is no. Vayichal is actually more lenient than Aneinu because the people are having the aliyahs, they are fasting and they're making a bracha on their aliyah. So for Vayichal, you've got three people fasting and they are given the aliyahs, that's, that, that works. Uh, for Aneinu, it's a bracha said by the Chazan because there's a Tzibu which are fasting. And that's where it becomes more uh, difficult. And therefore, if you don't have 10 people fasting, uh, then you should just say Aneinu in, in Shemiyat Tefillah. And then you finish off, Baruch Atah Hashem, Ba'inil Ami Yisroel, Tefillah. Right, let's move on. The, this is our last thing on our list for today. So someone's asking, people are now going on holidays. And so sometimes you need to make an aid of if you're sharing premises with others, she's asking, can you make an Eiriv with a Mezainas role? So at first I didn't feel it's a problem. Actually, the Eiriv has to be made with bread, but it can be even bread, which is um, rice bread. It doesn't have to be Hamutzi bread. It can be another type of bread. And then here, this is, so this is the Orocha HaShulchan. It says it can be bread, which is Hamutzi, even bread, which is mezoinus. He quotes from the Dark Moshe, in the name of Rabbeinu Yerucham, that you can use lachmanios, um, which is really mezoinus, as you look in some Kuf Samaches, and still you can use that. My only dilemma is, for mezoinus to become hamoitzi, you need to have a larger amount. So the minimum amount for Eru is that each family has to be represented by a uh, the size of a, um, a gregoris, size of a fig, whatever, whatever it is. Do, if you're using mezoinus, would that be enough? Or do you have to have a larger amount? Because a smaller amount is not considered bread, only when it becomes a large amount. So I don't know the answer. The fellow called me again on Friday. I told him, just use, just use hamoiti spread, you know, use your hamoiti challah and finish and avoid the problem. But it's an interesting question. I wanted to share that with you. Um, well, you know what? I'm going to share with you one more thing which came in on Friday. So a woman asks me, she uh, listens to a lot of shiurim, and she's got three toddlers, and sometimes she's got these earbuds which is listening to shiurim. Is she allowed to listen, to continue listening to something, a shir online, whilst she's changing the baby's diapers? So I answered her, actually, that it is okay, because you are allowed to think Torah in the presence of, uh, of something which is offensive. To say words of Torah wouldn't be okay, but since it's just a Machshava, then the, what's going on in Machshava is, is, is not exposed to the offensive matter, and therefore that would be okay. Well, we'll start with that and wish you all a uh, good evening. And if you wish you, we shouldn't have to fast. And we should see the Ullah Hashlema.
these days will be days of Sosin and Simcha or Moyadim Tevim. Thank you for joining us and I wish you all good night. Yes, sir.